Amen. Brothers and sisters, you may be seated. And now I ask that you would please um, unite your hearts to mine as we lift up a prayer to our God. Holy Father in heaven, as Pastor Kaysen was proclaiming from your word just a few moments ago, you are thrice holy. And unrighteousness may not dwell with you. You are surrounded by the endless praise of cherubim and seraphim. And yet, O oh God, as we were just singing, we are also reminded that you are full of mercy, that you are compassionate, and that, O oh God, you turned your eyes upon us in pity as we were drowning in a sea of sin and depravity. And, O oh God, your arm was not too short, and you reached down and you saved us. You pulled us up and you have seated us with Christ. Glory be to you, our great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, for this salvation that you have given us, for the promises that you have made to us in the covenant of grace. Oh Lord, we pray for the reality of those promises, for the reality of the imputed righteousness of Christ or the reality of the work of your Holy Spirit in our hearts sanctifying us. We pray that all of these things would affect the way that we live our lives individually as we look to Christ, that they would affect the life of this corporate body Oh Lord, we pray for the gathering church. We pray that you would be merciful to us. We pray that our church would continue to mature, that our church would be firmly rooted in the scriptures and built upon the solid foundation of Christ such that no matter what kinds of winds assail the walls that it would not fall. We pray for love and truth to prevail in this assembly, that you would smile upon us and be pleased with us. Holy Father, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Barbados at Covenant Reformed Baptist Church where Pastor John Ritter's guard has been laboring. We thank you that the RBNet coordinator, Mark Chansky, and his wife, Diane, recently were able to go visit the brethren there to encourage them for Miss Diane's um, teaching the ladies, for Mark's preaching and talking with the saints there. Oh God, we pray that you would encourage covenant church there, that you would encourage Pastor John, that you would even use our brother Mark's visit there to strengthen them, encourage them, help them to persevere. We pray that good fruit would be born there in Barbados as 
false teaching is rampant, heresies are popular, that the true gospel, the gospel of salvation through grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, that that would go forth, that Pastor John, the Covenant Church, would be faithful in that proclamation, and that many more would come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and that you would bless... um, Father, the churches in Arbinet, all of us, as we pray for and seek to support um, Pastor John Rittersgard and the work there, and that you would bless Pastor Chris Powell as he oversees that work from Canada. Father, we pray for Christ the King Anglican Church in Boone, for Pastor Chris Johnston as he proclaims your word this morning, that you would smile upon that assembly, unite them in the truth of the gospel. Father, we pray that you would bind their hearts together in love and that their assembly would offer up pleasing spiritual sacrifices of thanksgiving and praise to your throne of grace. For we have all gathered on this Lord's day to worship the same great God. Father, in our own assembly, there are many needs and also many reasons to rejoice. We do thank you, O Lord, for baby um, Lucy Ingersoll and for the progress that she has made in gaining weight and drinking milk. We pray that that would continue and that she would be full of health and vigor, that she would be happy and healthy, that you would bless our brother Jared and our sister Leah as they care for her and tend to her special needs during this time. Holy Father, we thank you that you have made provision for um, the Duncan family in providing a work contract for Todd. We praise you for answering our prayers for that, and we petition you now, O God, in faith for continued provision for the Duncans, and that you would smile upon their family, that, um, Father, you would help Todd to continue Um, to have gainful employment in the field that he is trained and skilled in. And um, Father, we again just thank you for this this good gift um, that you have given the Duncans. Father, we thank you for our sister Olivia being accepted to Boyce College, just how exciting that that is. And we pray for her as she makes now preparations and sets her face towards really turning the page to a new chapter of her life, of relocating to Louisville in coming months and all of these things, that you would help her, give her wisdom, discernment, that you would embrace her in your fatherly arms, and that you would equip her for everything you have called her to. And, O Lord, here in our community, We pray for Sheriff B. Phil Howell. We thank you for the way that you have placed him in his office to serve and protect those of us who live here in Ashe County, and we ask that you would help him to execute all of the duties, the responsibilities of his office with justice and righteousness, that you would use him as a minister of good in our community and that um, indeed your name would be glorified, for we know that civil magistrates 
whether they recognize it or not, are your servants, and we pray that he would be a pleasing servant of yours. And finally, O Lord, we pray for this portion of our worship service as we come to the reading and the preaching of your holy word. O God, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in your word and that you promise us that it does not return to you void, that you always accomplish the purpose for which you send it. And so, Lord, accomplish your purpose among us this morning. May your Holy Spirit work in the hearts of all, the believer and the unbeliever alike, that you would encourage, strengthen, exhort the believers among us, that you would convict the unbelievers among us, and that Christ would be glorified today here in this place. And we, Father, pray all of these things to you by the Holy Spirit in the name of your Son, whom together with you we worship and glorify on this Sabbath day. Amen. Beloved, I now invite you to turn with me to the book of Genesis, chapter 7, as we continue our study through this first book of Moses, and indeed this first book of the Bible, as we have been looking at the life of our father Noah, his building of the ark and the preservation of him, his family, and all the animals that came to him in the ark, their salvation from judgment. We will be beginning this morning in verse 11 and concluding the chapter in verse 24. Genesis chapter 7, beginning in verse 11. Please stand. These are the words of God. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very same day that Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them, entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. 
And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. These are the words of God. You may be seated. Are you afraid of water? Some people are. It's called hydrophobia. That's not something I personally struggle with. But there was a recent incident which I had with water that did make me a little fearful. I was on my way to visit my then fiance, now wife, and I got on highway 421 and I was caught in a terrible rainstorm, the kind where cars had their flashers on and were pulled off to the side of the road. I probably should have done that myself, but that's not the point of the story. The water was coming down like a sheet. I'm sure that you've all seen that before. The sound of it on the roof was so loud that I couldn't hear anything on my speakers. My podcast was being drowned out, and I was having trouble keeping on the road. And then I felt like I started hydroplaning. I was kind of scared. Now, I know that's not the most riveting story ever. But in that moment, I was frightened. A few moments, I was really frightened. But I did have the comfort in that moment that if I didn't wreck, eventually I would come out of the storm. Eventually, it would all be clear. It would be gone. And I did come out of it when I got onto I-77 and had blue skies all the way down to see Rose. But the storm I went through obviously, was nothing compared to the great global flood of Noah's day. And the hope and the relief that I looked for and experienced, well, that relief was not coming to the men and the women outside the ark. No, for them, as John Bunyan, the great Baptist writer and preacher, observed, the waters just kept coming and kept coming And they kept coming. And as they continued coming, those waters caused every person, every animal on earth to drown, gasping for air, struggling to stay afloat to no avail. The world became a massive underwater graveyard. That's heavy. But it's meant to be. Such is just punishment for rebellion 
against God. And we Christians know that and understand that, don't we? Last week, Moses wrote about the beginning of this judgment, but in this passage, he includes a new detail. We already knew that Noah was 600 years old when the flood began. But now we also discovered that it was on the 17th day of the second month that it began raining. We see that here in verse 11. And some sources that I have read rightly observed that the specificity with which Moses records that date to us indicates to us that the flood is nothing less than a real historical event. It is not just an allegory. It is not a fairy tale. Humanity's salvation aboard the ark, it is symbolic and it is typological of Christ. Yes, that is true. But that doesn't mean that it isn't also real history. It most certainly is real history. It happened beloved, the earth was covered. The entire earth was covered by the floodwaters. And when the secularists, when the liberals seek to mock this story, when they seek to undermine our confidence in the Bible, when they seek to mock and they seek to destroy our faith in Christ and the gospel, we must stand firmly upon this and all the scriptures and say, let God be true, and every man a liar. The unbelieving response, though, to God's righteous judgments, well, that's nothing new, is it? Peter, the apostle Peter, teaches us that the wicked still say such things about Christ's return, for example, just like they were saying about the flood, just like they say today about the flood. None of this stuff is real. None of this matters. You're living your life based on this ancient collection of books. We most certainly are. God speaks to us in these inspired and inerrant books. But listen to how the apostle Peter describes the mocking of these unbelievers. He says, they say, where is the promise of his coming? Speaking of Christ, second coming. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Peter is teaching us that the unbelievers of our day scoff just as the unbelievers of Noah's day did. The world mocked the message which Noah preached, and today the world laughs at the gospel and the teachings of the apostles as well. They do not soberly anticipate the return of Jesus with all his saints and angels. 
The Lord Jesus himself says this in Matthew 24, that for as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus says that Noah's generation went about their ordinary lives until that 17th day of the second month, which we are reading about today. When, Moses writes, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. When that happened, we can be sure that no one was laughing at Noah anymore. That normal life came to a screeching halt for everyone. Jesus tells us it will be the same way when he returns for us and delivers judgment upon the wicked. The world won't be expecting it. But we Christians are called to live in such a way that we are ready for him. Indeed, we are longing for his return. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But imagine being outside the ark when this day of judgment finally came and you're not prepared. Imagine the heavy rain pouring down while at the same time water from beneath the earth's surface begins violently shooting up. It begins collecting on the ground. The waters once again starting to dominate the earth as they did in the beginning. That would be terrifying. But for those wicked men, it was too late to escape. And such will be the case on the day of the Lord when Christ returns and delivers judgment. But today is the day of salvation, friend. Not tomorrow. Today is the day. Unbelieving friend, do not repeat the folly of the men in Noah's day. God has been patient with you up until this point, but he has not promised and he is not obligated to give you another day. Fly to the ark of Christ and be saved from the wrath to come, repent of your sins, obtain pardon through Jesus' shed blood on the cross, and then live in hope of his return and of the resurrection because Christ was raised on the third day for the justification of his people. One of the purposes of this flood account is to point us to Christ. As we saw last week, Noah is functioning here as a picture of Christ. Verse 12 says, And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, we already talked about this some last week, but I want to point out something else to you about this. Many men throughout church history have correctly identified Noah as a kind of new version of Adam a type of new Adam, a new Adam to serve God after the fall of the first Adam. 
Noah becomes a covenant head like Adam, right? Noah subdues animals like Adam. He's given a dominion mandate like Adam. But who is the ultimate and perfect new Adam? Jesus Christ, whom Paul calls the last Adam. Christ is the one who obtained the eternal life which our father Adam forfeited. And prior to Christ's public ministry, where did he spend 40 days? In the wilderness, being tested. And what is the desert wilderness but a picture of the fallen creation? like a corrupted Garden of Eden, right? With thorns and thistles and wild animals. And here in verse 12, Noah, a type of that coming last Adam, endures 40 days of rain coming down upon the fallen creation because of sin's curse. But only one of these new Adams brings about the reversal of that curse. And that's Jesus and Jesus alone. Who surely saves all his people from all their sins. And by studying Noah, because we remember that our Lord Jesus teaches us that Moses in these first five books of the Bible wrote about him. So that by studying these Old Testament scriptures, we can learn and grow in our understanding of Christ and our love for Christ and the work that he has accomplished for his people. So let's continue doing that very thing in verses 13 and 14. The text says, on the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast, according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. Now keep that text in mind and listen to what the Apostle Paul writes when he compares Christ to Adam. He says, for as in Adam, all die. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. That is all united to Adam under the broken covenant of works shall be eternally condemned, but all of those united to Jesus in the covenant of grace shall live forever. So how do these verses in Genesis correspond to that? Well, think about it, beloved. Everyone united to Noah all the members of his family, all the animals that sought refuge in the ark, all of them were saved. All of them. They were preserved while the rest of the world perished in judgment. 
Jesus and his church is the refuge and shelter of the repentant sinner, just as Noah and the ark were the salvation for all of those who came into it. And Jesus will not fail to save even one of his sheep. All in Christ shall live. In Christ, there is no condemnation. He teaches us, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. To the saint who is tormented by doubting your salvation, may the picture of the ark, may the words of Jesus strengthen your weak knees. Christ has been given a mission from the Father. He has been given a mission to bring all of his people into the celestial city. And he isn't going to let go of your hand as you're struggling along the way. Oh, I know, beloved, sometimes you are confronted with your own weakness and frailty. Sometimes you fall into sin. And while you should grieve over those times, you must not focus so much upon your own sin that you neglect to think of the mercy and power of Jesus. Jesus has given you the gift of the spotless robe of his righteousness. He has put it on you such that God accepts you for Christ's sake alone. God has accepted and adopted you as his own son, as his own daughter. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan, saw that hope in this text. He wrote that the salvation is sure. It is not in our own keeping. It is in the mediator's hand. Do you trust Christ? Then rest in Christ? Do you see the work of the Spirit of Christ in your life? Then rest in Christ. He is a mighty and a gentle Savior who will not break the bruised reed, and all of His elect are safe and secure in His arms. Just as Noah's family and all these creatures were safe and sound in the ark. So let's keep reading as we see more of that. Verse 15, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. Now, I do want to address that last phrase there at the end of verse 15, breath of life. So that, that denotes creatures which had animal life. Um, think of that word animal like the word animated. Think of the difference between a tree and a dog, right? Both have life, 
A tree grows and a dog grows. A tree needs its life sustained. A dog needs its life sustained. But the dog is animated. A dog has some level of consciousness, right? It has senses and instincts. It can react. It can experience things. And that's what we mean by animal life. And that's what Moses means by the creatures which had the breath of life. Now, of course, mankind also has the breath of life, right? But in a very different and special way. Because God gave mankind a reasonable and immortal soul. He made him in the image of God. We know ourselves and we know God. Mankind has the law of God written on his heart. And for that reason, mankind is the pinnacle of the created order. The Lord Jesus teaches us this in Luke chapter 12, when he is teaching us not to worry, not to be filled with anxiety. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, for you are of more value than many sparrows. As we saw last week, men and animals are both preserved aboard the ark. But make no mistake, man is unique in the world. Don't let the secular left tell you differently. Mankind is not a blight upon the earth, and children are not burdens, they are blessings. The fact brothers and sisters, that we men and women can have relationships with God, that we believers are in covenant with our creator, that is incredible. The psalmist was in awe of this. He was amazed by this. Listen to what he says. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? God, we're just little specks and you care about us? Is God concerned with you, dear Christian? Is he concerned with your struggles? He certainly is. Just consider that it was his eternal purpose to glorify himself through your salvation. Oh, what mercy God has shown each of us in Christ. He preserved Noah aboard the ark so that Christ would come to die for you, to die for me. He preserved life aboard the ark so that his church could enjoy life eternal. Verse 16, and those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. So to save all those lives, the ark would have to endure incredible stresses as it floated in the waters. To that point, John Calvin observes that the shutting of what would presumably have been a massive door was a divine action. He writes that the ark was made secure from the deluge, not by human artifice, but 
by a divine miracle. Calvin is saying that the sealing of the ark for the flood was supernatural. Reading those words in verse 16, I think of the old hymn, Leaning on the Everlasting Arms, where we sing that God's people are safe and secure from all alarms. So no matter how badly those floodwaters assailed the ark's hull, those doors were not busting. God wouldn't allow it. But I also think of that image of being shut inside, sealed up, almost like burial in a grave. Like Noah and his family were entering a kind of death making the ark a kind of family tomb, if you will. Church, brother Christian, sister Christian, have you ever died? I have. And I've been buried. And you have too, brother Christian. You have too, sister Christian. God's word says so. It says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We believers in Christ have died to our old self. We have been joined to the death of Jesus, and yet we live in him with the promise of eternal life in the age to come. We Christians are a kind of dead men walking. We are dead to sin, but alive in Christ. Noah and his family, by entering the ark in our passage today, Well, their lives are saved, but they do so by entering into a type of death as they go through the flood. But it's not the type of death that's being experienced by all those outside the ark. No, and his family are being saved, but they are perishing. It was a type of death in which they were alive, safe in the ark with the hope of a new earth when they emerged. John Calvin, seeing the ark again as a type of the church, says that Noah, believing the promise of God, gathered himself, his wife, and his children together in order that under a certain appearance of death, he might emerge out of death. Paul says to the church in Colossae that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The believer is safe in Christ, hidden in Christ. The believer's sins are separated from them as far as the east is from the west, counted righteous for Jesus' sake. Our sins don't condemn us in Christ. We are under grace and we possess the hope of the resurrection on the last day, just as Noah and his family possess the hope of emerging from the ark into a renewed world. God made them a promise. God has made us a promise. And this is the hope of the Christian in life and in death.
That even when dying, the believer knows this is not the final word. For the Christian, death is a pathway into Jesus' arms. Death is gain for us. And for the believer, the body too will experience resurrection and redemption. We shall reign, as we were singing earlier, with our glorious King forever and ever. And though all men pass through death, for Christians, the sting of death is gone. We are victors in Christ. Death is an enemy, but it is a defeated enemy. Christ says that those who have, or rather Paul says that those who have died in Christ are with Christ right now and will be resurrected like Christ. And so in this life, beloved, we live as those who have died, meaning that sin's power over us has been broken. We aren't its slaves anymore. Christ's Spirit has freed us and empowers us to live holy lives pleasing to God. Paul tells the Galatians, far be it from me to boast in anything except what? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. We don't live the way we did when we were lost, do we, believers? We don't do that because that person has died. And our new man is being renewed day by day. Let's continue on now to verses 17 through 20, and, and watch what it says. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. Now notice here, beloved, how the ark is said to float on the face of the waters. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's hearkening all the way back to chapter 1, verse 2, where we read that in the beginning, the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Remember how last week we observed that the flood narrative is a decreation, and in conformity to that image, we see the ark, along with a new Adam, you'll remember, floating on the waters in a similar way, to which the Spirit hovered above them when God began his creative work. But in this text, God's work is that of judgment, cleansing, and renewal. He was decreating so that he could recreate. But once again, we are reminded that this is not because God made a mistake or made the world in a flawed way. No, this is the cost of human wickedness, human sin. God made man upright, but they sought out many schemes. 
And as all of this was happening, I think we can be sure that Noah would need to hold on to his faith in God's promise to avoid despair and fear as he was undergoing this experience, because you'll see here how Moses vividly describes the ever-escalating water level until even the mountains are covered. Around here, we know how high a mountain can be. Well, he says that they were covered 15 cubits, which is more than 20 feet. That's insane, right? And surely Noah and his family and even the animals could feel the ark moving as it floated on the waters. There was no pilot. There were no rudders. It was going where the winds and the waves took it. So how could Noah know that they would be all right? How could he know that the door wouldn't give or that a leak wouldn't spring up in the lower decks? How could he have hope as the world was being destroyed around him? Because his God made him a promise. God told him, I will establish my covenant with you. That ark was being guided and protected by God, just like we are, beloved. Those of us united to Christ and in the ark of the church, God is caring for He is watching over. God has entered into covenant with us in Christ, and he has made us a promise. He has promised that all things work together for good for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. Do you love God? Well, then this promise is for you. What's going on around us? in our church, in our family, in our country, maybe even in our own bodies. Turmoil, discouragement in the church, maybe a a fearful diagnosis of some kind from the doctor, or maybe the increasing godlessness in our nation. Family strife. Yet in every one of those things, bad things, but in all of those things, God promises you, his child, that he has a good purpose. Lay hold of that comfort in faith, beloved. Hear the words of Jesus. Do not fear, only believe. Our God is powerful, holy, and just. He is the very fountain of being and the author of life who is directing all things to their appointed end for the good of his people and for the glory of his great name. Oh, and that is surely a comfort to his people. That's the comfort that Charles Spurgeon said that the believer rests his head on at night. But that same truth is a terror to his enemies. As the creator of life, God has the sovereign prerogative to take it, which is exactly what we see him doing here in this text. And we know he is right to do so. This is judgment for cosmic treason against the Lord God Almighty. Coming to verses 21 
and 22 were reminded of that all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. That was every human alive. Everyone descended from Adam and Eve. But even the animals, perhaps we may ask, what did they do? They didn't rebel against God. We are reminded that God gave our race dominion over this world. David prays in Psalm 8 that you have given man dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Now, of course, that was a dominion that man should have exercised in perfect submission to God. But the fall changed that such that the prophet Isaiah can write that the earth lies defiled under its inhabitants. For they have transgressed the laws, violated the statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left." Notice how Adam breaking the covenant of works has ramifications for even the ground itself. Paul acknowledges that the whole created order suffers because of human rebellion when he says that, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Brethren, sin is destructive. And God hates it. It is opposed to who he is. The global flood should be a loud testimony to every person, every man or woman, boy or girl, that God detests wickedness. And even the believer, brothers and sisters, must not use the grace of Christ as an excuse to perform those sinful acts which God hates. The true believer will hate sin as God hates it, right? So give sin no quarter. Give it no space in your life. Wage a merciless war against it. Expose all those hidden sins to the light of Christ. Don't hide them. Destroy them. Repent of them. Sin is nothing to play with. It is not something to be taken lightly. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't charge us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. In other words, don't feed the flesh. Starve it. Don't give in to those fallen lusts and desires. Refuse to enter into the gossipy conversation. Refuse to look at the scantily clad woman on the magazine. Refuse to yell at your husband or talk back to your mom and dad. Instead, Paul says, 
put on Christ. Look to Christ and be transformed by Christ. The wrath of God against sin for the Christian was satisfied by Christ on the cross, and we praise him for that. But let us not work to incur our heavenly father's fatherly displeasure, but let us rather live and to work for his good pleasure, as the scripture says. The flood reminds us of God's wrath against sin, but at the same time, it also reminds us of his mercy. It reminds us of how he preserves his people. He upholds, watches over us, and ensures that we will endure to the end. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, the scripture says. And something else that I believe the flood can remind us of is that day of Jesus Christ, that last day. It reminds us of that in judgment, certainly, but also in another way. Think about the words of the prophet Habakkuk. He says, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That is happening right now, church. Right now, the gospel is going forth. Jew and Gentile being brought into the kingdom of God all over the globe. Every tribe, tongue, people, and nation, people from everywhere looking to Jesus Christ. And we saints are being used by God to accomplish that mission. We are proclaiming that good news as a church corporately and as individuals. I once heard a man say that it is incredible to think that because of Jesus, that there are Gentiles all over this planet worshiping the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Praise the Lord for the gospel, the gospel that is spreading like waters that are covering the earth, waters of grace and mercy that God is sending forth into the earth to the praise of his glory forever and ever in the eternal state. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and his Christ. And now speaking of water, Let's go to our final pair of verses, which conclude the chapter. Verses 23 and 24. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. <clears throat> now, verse 24 is indicating that from the time it started raining, it took 150 days before the ark came to rest on the mountain. So that's when the, the waters began to recede. But I must draw attention to something. And we will see and talk more about this next week. But the New Testament makes a very clear and unambiguous connection between the flood and baptism. 
The Apostle Peter says that baptism, which corresponds to this, the ark and the flood, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul makes a connection to baptism similarly from the Israelites crossing the Red Sea when he says that all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now again, this will be touched on with more depth next week. But for now, as we prepare to enter a time of prayer and reflection, I want us to consider one thing that we can learn from this. Moses tells us that all life on earth was blotted out except for Noah and those with him in the ark. But they all went through the water, right? But it was only those in the ark who were saved. How about the Israelites? Well, the Hebrews and the Egyptians both went through the waters, but the Hebrews were saved and the Egyptians drowned. In both cases, the same waters, which some were saved through, others were judged and condemned through. So what was the difference between those inside the ark and those outside the ark? God's grace. How about the Hebrews and the Egyptians? What was the difference between them? God's grace. Those who were God's people were saved through the waters, and those who were not God's people were not saved through the waters. They were judged and condemned through the waters. And so we are helped to understand that the waters of baptism themselves do not save anyone. An unregenerate person who gets baptized is still unregenerate. They went through the water, but they will perish like the Egyptians, like those outside the ark. It is only the imputed righteousness of Jesus that justifies a sinner and saves them from God's wrath. And that is received by faith alone. Only those who are in the ark of Christ derive benefit from going through the waters of baptism. If baptism did itself regenerate, Paul wouldn't make a distinction between baptism and the gospel because he told the Corinthians that Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Now, that doesn't make baptism optional. That doesn't make baptism unimportant. Again, coming back to that next week, so stay tuned. But it does mean that baptism adds nothing to the righteousness which Jesus gives us when we repent and trust in him for salvation. For salvation comes the moment that the newly regenerated heart cries out to God for mercy. We praise him because he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He has told us that this world will one day be judged with fire. But he has also told us 
that if we are in the ark of Christ, we will be spared and we will enter into a wonderful new creation. Noah got a little foretaste of that in his life. This whole ark thing comes to mind. But all of us believers get a little taste of it as we rest in Christ in this life, as we rest in the one to whom we have fled for refuge. Judgment will not come upon us, not because we didn't deserve it, but because that judgment fell on Jesus. And we are promised to share in his reward, just as all those united to Noah's figurative death shared in the new world. So all those united to Christ's death and resurrection will share in eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we praise you this day for being a new and greater Noah who shelters us, who is our refuge from the wrath to come. We thank you that we have been united to you by your Holy Spirit. And oh, Lord Jesus, we are so happy that this morning we can think of that day when you return. And that is not a day that we dread. That is a day that we long for. We want you to return quickly. We want to see your face. We want to be embraced by you, Lord Jesus. We thank you that we are able to have that joy. We thank you that we are able to have that hope that no matter what is going on around us, that we will be delivered on that day. So help us to live as you taught us, Lord Jesus, as those who are ready for your return, that we would be faithful servants, that we would be going about the good works that you have prepared for us, for the glory of your name and all the earth. For we know that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Lord Jesus, minister to us by your word and spirit. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would help us to love you with each day of our lives more than we did the previous day, and that we would desire nothing more than your return for us, your people, in your ark, who have been delivered and will be delivered from the waters of judgment. We lift up this thanksgiving to you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.